2022 was a year in the global spotlight for the Middle East, with both political upheaval and glamour showpiece events visiting the region over the past 12 months. Protests in Iran have brought about real hope of change after the death of a young woman in police custody. While in Israel, the re-election of Benjamin Netanyahu kick-started a journey towards what has been described as a fully right-wing government. The Middle East held its first World Cup, with the globe's biggest stars like Lionel Messi and Kylian Mbappe coming to the Gulf to contest the beautiful game's most prestigious trophy. The region also returned to the forefront of the global drive for carbon neutrality when Egypt's Sharm el-Sheikh hosted the UN Climate Change Conference. This is Beyond the Headlines, and I'm Jamie Goodwin. In this episode, we'll look at 2022's most important moments. Our reporters who were there when the year's biggest stories unfolded talk us through how these major events could change the face of the region in the 12 months ahead. Back in November, Benjamin Netanyahu resurrected his political career with an astonishing comeback as Prime Minister of Israel. But his triumph caused concern. Leading an ever-polarized country, Mr. Netanyahu's policies towards Palestinians have angered many in the Arab world since he first came to power 26 years ago. Reporter Tom Helm explains what his re-election means for both Israel and Palestinians. When I left Jerusalem at the beginning of November, after a trip to cover Israel's latest elections, I couldn't help but wonder whether I'd be making a second trip back there within a matter of weeks. I was in Israel for the country's fifth vote in three years. Even by the fractious standards of Israeli politics, that is a lot. In the run-up to the latest round, pollsters were unsure about whether results might finally be decisive. There was a real possibility that the country would be in for yet another stalemate in the Knesset, which would likely have led to a sixth election. That now feels like a long time ago, and these fears have been assuaged. But if you're a liberal, centrist, or even of the more traditional secular Israeli right, the results are worrying, even terrifying, for other reasons. Likud, the right-wing political party led by former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, was the clear victor. They will lead at the expense of the previous broad coalition government led by Yair Lapid. Likud's victory means that many Israelis still put their faith in Mr. Netanyahu, one of the most controversial politicians in Israel's history. It also means that they are willing to put aside an ongoing criminal investigation into alleged corruption during his last stint as prime minister. Mr. Netanyahu's critics worry that he might use his new position to influence the court's decision, even if it means changing the very nature of the justice system in Israel, a vital arbiter in the country's democracy. But most of all, opposition voters, wherever they fall, fear the politicians Mr. Netanyahu is now using to form his new coalition. Politicians such as Itamar Bengvir, leader of the extreme-right Jewish Power Party. His policy proposals include the complete annexation of the West Bank and the formation of a government body to encourage Palestinian migration. The fact Mr. Bengvir is expected to be made National Security Minister means he is in a very senior position to try to implement his agenda, although it remains to be seen how much he will be able to actually achieve. Something as dramatic as an entire annexation of the West Bank and evicting Palestinians from it is fanciful. But things are still very bad there. 2022 was one of the bloodiest years for Palestinians in some time. More than 150 Palestinians and more than 20 Israelis have been killed, according to the UN. And while Mr. Bengvir might yet be unable to implement his most extreme policies, the racism that he and his colleagues are accused of whipping up 
adds to an already critically hostile mood. This ideology is proving particularly appealing to young people. Unlike in other parts of the Western world, the preferred extreme political position of Israeli youth is on the right, not the left. That was abundantly clear during these elections. When I went to a Jewish power rally in a cinema at the beginning of an October weekend, many of the attendees and volunteers were not just young adults, but too young to vote at all. One was 16-year-old volunteer steward Yosef, who, over the din of other young fans, told me plain and simple that Itamar will stop the terrorists. Young people on the left find themselves in a far less vigorous movement. In some parts, it is actually disappearing. After 30 years in Parliament, Meretz, one of the most left-wing parties in Israel, failed to win enough votes to enter the Knesset. The party's leader, Zahava Galon, called it a personal and national disaster. In what seems like a desperate search for hope, Ms. Galon is emphasizing a fact that many in the defeated camps of Israeli politics are reminding themselves of. A sizable portion of Israeli voters, not just on the left, voted for parties vehemently opposed to the extreme right. If these opinions are able to coalesce by the time of the next vote, there is a chance for a more moderate administration. Israel has known its fair share of short-lived right-wing firebrands, and there are still powerful bodies that curtail the most extreme policies that some in the new government advocate. But time is not on the side of liberal Israelis. The orthodox and ultra-orthodox population of Israel, who are far more likely to vote for right-wing conservative parties, is growing fast. The same cannot be said for secular Israelis. Crucially, the vote of Arab Israelis is also under threat. Apathy in the community is high, particularly after such a violent year, and the perceived failure of a coalition of Arab parties, known as the Joint List, who joined the previous government. The need for journalists to cover the excitement of a new Israeli election is looking less likely than it was two months ago, but a litany of bleaker stories could be about to break. If they do, Many in Israel might start pining for the days when inconclusive elections were the biggest issue around. Twenty twenty two saw debates raging internationally about climate change. We were greeted by dire headlines and alarm, with the UN giving a stark warning that the battle against carbon emissions is not going well. As the world gathered in Egypt for the COP twenty seven Global Climate Forum, it remains hard for some to understand what's being done and whether it's even still possible to stop climate change. Let's hear from the Nationals Hamza Hendawi on where the world stands on climate action and what we can expect after COP27. COP27 that was held in Egypt last November was probably one of the world's biggest stories of 2022. And that's just for the simple reason that thousands of people gathered in one place with the sole intention of finding a way to save the planet. These thousands of people included at least 110 heads of state, prime ministers, and cabinet ministers. At the end, they couldn't find an effective way of saving the planet in a timely fashion, but they gave it their best shot. But in the course of the two weeks I covered, I found out much to my dismay and disappointment that things are not looking so good for planet Earth. The summit was supposed to wrap up on Friday afternoon after two weeks of deliberations and often intense negotiations. But at the end, it did not finish until the small hours of Sunday morning, two days into extra time. 
it did have an agreement on how to go forward tackling global warming, and it did reach a milestone deal to create a dedicated fund to cover damages endured by vulnerable nations. But while that agreement on the fund, which in conference parlance was the loss and damage fund, was historic in many ways, but some countries actually criticized the, the general outcome of the conference for failing to commit to more ambitious goals. Because a lot of people had looked at that summit for those ambitious targets, targets to do with how to reduce gas emissions, uh, how to uh, move ahead more aggressively with renewable energy. What lent a great deal of significance to the Sharm Sheikh COP27 conference is that it was held against the backdrop of a series of natural and deadly disasters blamed on climate change, as well as growing economic hardship uh, endured by many nations across the world as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war. As for the disasters, these range from the floods in Pakistan to um, the drought in, in East Africa to the unusually hot climate in Europe last summer, uh, forest fires in California. But let me explain a little what the loss and damage fund means. The arrival or the, the agreement at the end of the conference to create that fund capped years of relentless lobbying by developing nations it has been a goal for many years to create that fund. Today, here in Sharm el-Sheikh, we established the first ever dedicated fund for loss and damage, a fund that has been so long in the making. What we need is more trust, more empathy, and more understanding. Our world deserves this. This process deserves this. But many people explained with justification that it will take years for that fund to be effective, not to mention the fact that no one knew exactly in the conference where the funds, the actual money, will come from and how they will be dispersed. And these very same people argued also that it would have been better to concentrate on existing mechanisms to help the countries that have been badly affected by climate change. Those critical of the conference's outcomes are citing what scientists have been saying for months now, that limiting warming to 1.5 degrees would actually save the world against catastrophic climate change. But other scientists at the same time are saying that 1.5 is no longer feasible and that staying below 1.5 may not be enough to save the planet or to arrest the rapid deterioration in global warming. They're also saying that the world is heading for 2.5. If current plans to reduce gas emissions and switching to renewable energy will stay at the same pace they are now. And that's really bad news for the planet. But for the hundreds of activists who gathered in Shamshi and staged those small but symbolically significant protests and rallies to urge more action 
To them, what they wanted to hear from COP27 in Egypt is a statement that's crystal clear that provides for the phasing out, gradual maybe, of fossil fuel. And it is what scientists agree on, that fossil fuel is what is chiefly responsible for gas emissions and subsequently global warming. But that was not in the final statement by the conference. The world came together in Qatar when the FIFA World Cup kicked off for the first time in the Middle East and the Arab world. But even before a ball had been kicked, there are many reasons why the Qatar tournament was unlike any other. It was the costliest World Cup to date, with Qatar also being the smallest country to ever host the competition by land size and population. Our reporter Sarah Forster cast her eye over the impact of the World Cup for Doha and the larger Gulf world. So one of the most popular sporting events, of course, of this year was the FIFA World Cup. It draws fans from more than 200 countries in the world and is watched by an estimated 5 billion people worldwide. There's only like 7 billion people in the world. So this is, it's safe to say this is a very popular event. And the thing is, it's not just about the football because for the host nation, it is a very big deal. World Cups can have significant impacts on economies, tourism and infrastructure of the host nation. For Qatar, this year's tournament was, well, for the world, this year's tournament was one of several firsts. So it was the first time the World Cup was hosted in the Middle East. It was the first time it's been played outside of the summer months. And it's also the first time in World Cup history that it had female match officials. We had three referees and three assistant referees who were all women appointed to this uh, tournament. It's also had the first fully demountable venue in the um, Cup's history. And that is Stadium 974, called as such because it was made using 974 shipping containers, which can all be, as I said, fully demounted. And all the stadiums are within a 50 kilometer radius of central Doha, which (laughs) means it had the most geographically compact footprint ever. When I was there at the start of the tournament, I was talking to fans and they were exhausted. They were able to go to every single game, basically. I mean, can you imagine for the next World Cup, which is going to be held in Canada, the US and Mexico, can you imagine trying to get to all three games in one day? It would just be physically impossible. However, in Qatar, because of their brand new metro system and the way that it was all very efficiently organized, it was perfectly possible for fans to go to three, maybe even four games a day. And uh, this meant that they were absolutely exhausted. I also went to one of the fan villages, which were made up of shipping containers. So each room was a container and it had its own ensuite bathroom. It had two single beds. The bathroom had a shower, a toilet, a sink and a mirror. And I was talking to the managing director of the fan village and he said that once the World Cup is over, all of these shipping containers will be sent to um, refugee camps around the world, to countries in need, to provide homes for people that need them. This is one of the uh, initiatives by the Qatari government. So it's nice to know that these things aren't going to go to waste. The Middle East 
as a region, has already put a lot of money into sport. I mean, the next three to five years is expected to grow even more by like up to, I think, nine or 10 percent. Abu Dhabi already hosts golf tournaments. Dubai has got tennis tournaments, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain and Abu Dhabi all host a Formula One. But sport is a big deal over here. We've been able to see that this new infrastructure built for the World Cup has had an almost immediate impact on the local economy in Doha. So there have been eight air-conditioned, low-carbon World Cup stadiums, all built from the ground up. Fan zones, training grounds, um, other outdoor tourist attractions as well. It's all estimated to have cost Qatar, according to Forbes, approximately $220 billion, which is absolutely remarkable for a football tournament. Um, On top of that, the Gulf Organization for Research and Development, which was established in 2009, also helped Qatar make their new stadiums much more energy efficient, some of them up to 45% more energy efficient uh, when compared to other similar buildings. So as a result, it's kind of laid out a benchmark for energy effectiveness when it comes to the GCC region in general. There have, of course, been negative reports in the media about Qatar's health and safety records. But according to estimates, the 2022 FIFA World Cup created 1.5 million new jobs in the construction, real estate and hospitality sectors of the economy. So it's had a huge effect. Additionally, the country's general plans for sort of economic diversification have had a bit of a fast track as a result of hosting the World Cup. So a legacy left by a sporting event like this is always a big deal. But considering this is the first time it was held in the GCC, It's unique in that the impact it's had on the region as a whole has been fairly notable. As a result of this World Cup, people who had never been to the Middle East before, people who had never even considered coming to the Middle East before, they bought flights and they came to see what it was all about. So in the future, there's a very good chance that they will now come back and discover other corners of the region, which will bring the Gulf that much closer to the rest of the world. On the 16th of September 2022, a 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman, Masa Amini, died in police custody. Her death became a rallying cry for years of frustrations and anger at the country's leaders. Demonstrations quickly erupted across the country. Such direct challenges to the powerful religious authorities that run Iran would usually be unthinkable but sustained protests swept through hundreds of towns and cities, as well as abroad. The Nationals' Nilufa Gardauzi takes us through the story and asks whether protests in Iran can really lead to regime change. Iran has been rocked by one of the largest protests in years. The death of Mahsa Amini, a 22-year-old woman who was arrested for not wearing her hijab properly and died while in the custody of the country's morality police, sparked a nationwide protest in September that began with women's rights slogans and developed into anti-regime demands. According to the Human Rights Activist News Agency, at least 18,000 people have been detained and about 500 protesters have been killed. The nationwide protests of 2022 are linked to those of 2017 and 19, as well as those of the past. Among the major differences is the support of expatriates and foreign countries including Iran's removal from the UN Commission on Women. This time, the demonstrations have drawn people of all ages, ethnicities, and genders, but the majority are younger generations and women. While there are differences, it appears that it follows a general evolution of people's demand for change. 
the regime's behavior has led to growing isolation in the international community and an internal struggle for legitimacy. Western countries no longer provide the partial support that the regime enjoyed during reformist governments. Its involvement in the Ukraine war and growing concerns regarding its nuclear program are two of the main reasons for this. The regime's attempt to substitute relations with Eastern countries such as China has proved futile, since they are likewise withdrawing from all sorts of support if there were any in the first place. This has negatively impacted the country's economy in particular. Internally, the strategy of intimidation, suppression, and inflexibility in the face of any kind of demand from people is proving to have resulted in increased micro-protests that are more difficult to oppress. Furthermore, it seems that little by little the idea of an undefeatable regime is starting to fade. In this regard, social media and news outlets outside of Iran play an important role. These outlets portray internal struggles, particularly when the sister of the supreme leader opposed her brother's tactics. There was also the issue that some people were unaware of the authorities' mindset. Recently, however, these outlets outside of the country have highlighted their conferences, indicating that sometimes decisions do not follow any kind of sound logic. By doing so, they were able to further break down the intimidating appearance the regime was trying to maintain. As in any society, people have used a variety of strategies to demonstrate their discontent throughout Islamic Republic's history. Voting for reformists was one of the earliest strategies. But after losing all hope in the system, the last step for showing dissatisfaction was boycotting the elections altogether. However, that strategy failed to work, as the regime continued its policy of intimidation and suppression, showing no flexibility and not going back even one step. Even after the Ukrainian airplane was shut down by IRGC, the regime pursued a strategy of denial, and then no one was publicly blamed and no justice was delivered even superficially. Now that the children have been shot in the protest, the regime does not accept any responsibility, which has resulted in more people losing hope in the system. The regime has never interacted with people in any way. Confrontation is always preferred over conciliation, making people choose the streets. At present, any trigger will cause more people to take to the streets, the latest being the death of Massa Amini. Meanwhile, protests have become more intelligent and less emotional and reactive. Union protests, industrial action, and strikes are coming together despite the government's attempt to atomize the movements and remove any kind of leadership. In the words of Gene Sharp, the American political scientist, atomization not only rips people from potential like-minded individuals, but it prevents them from even believing they exist. But people are gradually coming to the conclusion that the regime is not functioning well and that it may not be able to cope with the consequences of its action in the long run. Analysts say these developments may result in different outcomes. The continuation of the current situation, the emergence of a military government, or the establishment of a new secular political regime in the long run. We may not be able to predict the future. It appears, however, that this regime will not be able to return to its previous state, which means that its relative authority and legitimacy will no longer exist. 2022 has been a year with lots of major stories that have led to many changes in global politics and economies too. Thanks this week to Tom Helm, Hamza Hindawi, Sarah Foster, and Nilufa Gardauzi. We were produced by Thomas Smith, Arthur Edison, and Dawa Farid. I'm Jamie Goodwin. 
Join us again next week for part two of Beyond the Headlines, when we will be talking about the Russia-Ukraine war and the death of Queen Elizabeth II.